Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview on tap for all of you. Today's guest is Alan Argon. Alan was a guest I have uh, been excited to have on for a while. He's got quite a resume. Uh, Alan is a nutrition researcher and educator with over 25 years of success in the field. He is known as one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry's movement towards evidence-based information. His notable clients include Stone Cold Steve Austin, Derek Fisher, Pete Sampras, and the list goes on. So Alan writes a monthly research review, AARR, providing cutting-edge theoretical and practical information. Alan's work has been published in popular magazines as well as peer-reviewed scientific literature. One of the reasons I wanted to chat with Alan is he just had a new book come out that is called Flexible Dieting. And with that approach, I really like the way that he kind of includes everyone, I guess, is maybe the way to say it. When I think of things like the dietary guidelines or you know, even a specific way of eating that whomever believes is the best way, it sort of ignores the entire idea that individuals have different preferences and those preferences may or may not make a specific dietary trend or way of eating sustainable for them long-term. So I think that's why a lot of times we see people take on a very specific way of eating and do well at first, but gradually maybe slip away from it as it was sustainable for them in the short term, but not necessarily the long term. So Alan is one of the guys who's out there trying to find some templates that are going to help people both get what they need, but also meet their individual needs. And that's kind of the overarching theme with flexible dieting. A big component of that is kind of starting with protein and then with the fat and carbohydrate side of things, that's where you can kind of personalize a bit. If you're someone who really prefers more like fatty rich foods or is trying to reduce carbohydrates for whatever reason, there's a, there's room for it within his approach and kind of same with the other side of the spectrum. If you're targeting high amounts of carbohydrate and you want to fill the void in with that, with more of that, you can do it with his approach as well. So I wanted to talk to Alan a little bit about kind of like the idea behind it, some of the misrepresentation we see on there with about it and, and ultimately how you can like with any dietary approach, screw it up. So had a fun chat with Alan. I think you'll like this one and uh, you know, hopefully we'll have him back on down the road with some other topics. He is, he's considered one of the experts when it comes to protein research and things like that. So it was uh, awesome to have some of his time. If uh, you're interested in checking out this interview or any interview ad-free and early release, you can do that on the show's Patreon page. Right now, sitting on the show's Patreon page is, of course, this interview with Alan, but also my interview with Dr. Taylor Sittler, where I took another swing at chatting about continuous glucose monitors. I have one up on continuous glucose monitors already with uh, Kara Collier. So with uh, Dr. Sittler, I try to kind of go about it with a few different questions or some different angles so that we fill in some of the stuff that maybe we didn't chat with, with Kara. Um, on that note, not on the Patreon page yet and not yet recorded, I'll also be having doctors Spencer and Carl Nadolski come on to share their take on this. Uh, I think, you know, they'll, they'll, uh, I'm, they'll have some pessimistic views, I think, with it that I think will be 
good to share because like with any tool, it can be abused. And I want to hear kind of where, what they're seeing as potential uh, side effects or downfalls of having essentially more information available or more timely information available with blue, blood glucose and things like that. Uh, I know they'll also have some positives to talk about it, but they'll, they'll help kind of go full circle with uh, that conversation on continuous glucose monitoring. And if there's reason to talk about it more after that one, then, you know, maybe we'll have another guest on to, to, to fill in whatever gaps come up next. So like with any of the shows, topics and interests, feel free to reach out to me with questions, curiosities, or deeper dives on specific aspects. And I will try to, you know, find someone who will want to kind of address those specific things or is, is capable of doing that. So don't be bashful on that shot side. Um, also on the show, Patreon page, uh, is, uh, my interview with Vinny Crispino and Vinny is very interesting. We spoke quite a bit about his background, which was a highly competitive division one swimmer. And after, uh, kind of getting a little burnt out with that, he headed West to try to take up surfing and ended up breaking his back up against a rock and spent about 10 years kind of finding a solution that didn't involve him fusing discs. So uh, very interesting chat with him. And I think one of the common connection points we had too, is he's currently training for a 50 mile race. So if that tells you a little bit about how his progression from breaking his back on a rock has gone, it, it, it will highlight that he's also uh, the founder of a company called the pain Academy. So I think we'll actually probably do a follow-up interview with him because he's going to show me some movements that he thinks are going to be very valuable in terms of uh, making running a little more sustainable and, and possibly pain-free for, for those of you who are out there struggling with running because something is bothering you or some form of pain is keeping you from enjoying that sport the way you would like to. So those are up on the show Patreon page. You can access them by heading to my website at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. And that page has all the links to the show Patreon page, as well as links to all the episodes with the details, the notes, the links and everything like that. So that's kind of like the main landing page. From there, you can also contribute with one-time donations if you want to, or check out some of the links and discounts offered by the podcast show sponsors. Uh, also, if you happen to be in Austin, Texas, or visiting Austin, Texas on a weekend, I am hosting a group run on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. All people are welcome. You can come and walk. You can come and run. You can bring the whole family, the stroller, the dog, anything you want. Uh, we have a fun group. I think we had about 40 people out there the last couple couple Sundays, and we'll, we'd will we love to have you out there. Uh, right now, we have a two-and-a-half-mile run-walk option, a roughly four, four-and-a-half-mile uh, run loop, and then a six-mile run loop that we have and we're looking to possibly add more to that down the road as it grows uh, or also add maybe an early bird start since 8 a.m. is a little bit later for sometimes on the Sunday morning group run meetups. Uh, but if you want to join that or check it out, whether it to be coming all the time on Sunday mornings or just one time to see what it's like when you're visiting or something like that, that's 8 a.m. Right now we're meeting at Metz Park, but the specific details are best accessed at the Instagram page, which is at outliers ATX. All right. Uh, that is uh, all I have for the announcements other than this episode's show sponsors include element T and optimal carnivore element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar 
Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, going to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos are the citrus flavor and the newly restocked watermelon flavor for my long runs and post-run rehydration, as well as their chocolate flavor, which I love to add in my morning coffee with a little bit of creamer. Tastes great, and it's a fun way to start the day for me. If you are hesitant or would like to try out Element first, before you purchase, they are offering a flavor sample pack with one of each of their flavors for free to anyone who uses the HPO URL. If you want to check them out and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drink lmnt.com forward slash hpo links can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash hpo sponsors also supporting this episode are my friends at optimal carnivore organ meats are some of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet despite their benefits sometimes it can be difficult to incorporate them into your diet Optimal Carnivore aims at making these nutrients easier to access with their products, which include grass-fed organ complex, bone marrow complex, and grass-fed beef liver. These products work great for busy people who are traveling or as they develop an appreciation for organ meats. Their grass-fed organ complex has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and gallbladder. Bone marrow complex contains the same compounds as bone broth. Their products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. They also plant one tree for every product sold. If interested, you can visit amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10, that's HUMANSAVE10, for 10% off your next order. As always, all HPO sponsors, links, discounts can be found by visiting the show sponsor page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Alan Argon, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me, Zach. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's interesting. I know uh, I know you are at the moment uh, going around talking a bit about your book uh, that has to do with flexible dieting. And I find that topic really interesting because when I kind of first started engaging with podcasts, I guess you could say, like back in the early 2010s, there was this like kind of phenomenon that kind of was popping up in a lot of the nutrition talk of uh, like, if it fits your macro. And uh, I'm sure you remember this. And it was like, uh, it, it kind of was this thing where I think the intent was probably good with whoever came up with that originally. But then like, oftentimes happens on the internet, you get you get everyone trying to do everything they can with it. And before you know it, you're in a situation where it's not the same thing it was originally intended to be. Mm -hmm. And you sort of have to either rebrand it or reposition it in a way that actually kind of like doesn't have all that, that baggage that came along with the, the mistakes in the beginning and things like that. Was, was that what kind of first tipped you off to like a flexible diet type of approach or what was the kind of the, the genesis, I guess I should say? Yeah, it really was just banter on the bodybuilding forums where kids just basically wanted to get in shape and look 
better than average in terms of body composition, muscle gain, fat loss and stuff. And there's a lot of recreational bodybuilders, um, physique culture type folks, the occasional competitor. And uh, the lore at the time was it was all about the foods you chose in order to achieve a certain look. It was all about a very narrow set of uh, stereotypically um, authorized foods that would enable you to look like the guys on the cover of the magazines. Um, and so people were just very curious and, and very confused about what are these foods and stuff. And um, just constant questions would get asked about whether, okay, do I, do I need to eat chicken breast? But um, I, I, I like the dark meat. Is it okay if I, if I have dark, dark poultry, is that all right? And then the answer would be, well, that meat has a higher fat content. And so as long as you account for the fact that there's more fat coming in there per serving, then yeah, go, go ahead and have that food. It doesn't always have to be chicken breast. And um, similar questions would just pop up constantly. Like, can I have whole eggs instead of just the egg whites? Is that going to, can I still be cutting on that? Can I still achieve the physique I want on whole eggs? And then of course the answer would be, well, got to take into account the, the macronutrition of, of egg whites versus whole eggs. Whole eggs have about five grams of fat per, per egg. You just account for that and you're good. And so it would just literally go on and on all day, all day long. Can I have cheese during a cut? You know, can I have peanut <laughs> butter during a cut? And just any food you can think about, even different kinds of fruits. And of course the answer would be, all right, do you have any idea what your macronutrient targets are that would comprise your, you know, your, your, your diet? Um, how does this food fit into that scheme? You know, if that food fits your macronutrient targets, then it's fine. Go ahead and have that food. And so what that bit of advice turned into, it turned it, we turned it into an acronym. If it fits your macros, instead of having to say, if it fits your macronutrient targets, then go ahead and have that food. Like instead of writing that out every time for the newbies who post questions on the message boards, like dozens of times a day, we just literally wrote the acronym IFYM, look it up, IFYM, IFYM. And it became this cheeky, sort of snarky, smart ass answer just because people just had no concept of, of macronutrition and how different foods have different macronutrient breakdowns and how does that actually fit into a plan? And so um, what happened from that point was something that was unintended, which was people took the IIFYM acronym and turned it into a type of a diet. And not only just turning it into a diet, which was not the intention, they turned it into a, a junk food diet. So people would basically gloat over how they hit their macronutrient targets for protein, carbs, and fat, but they hit it with a, just a bunch of crap foods, like a bunch of desserts and maybe throw in some whey protein in there to round out the protein target. And, and um, they're like, yeah, woohoo, look, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm hitting my goals, eating pop tarts and whey. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, damn, okay. Um, that wasn't the intention. Uh, and so that that's where the whole IFYM thing came in play and sort of went viral and spread like wildfire. And um, uh, it was good and bad. It was good in the sense that it absolved many foods of, of their villain status 
just like, uh, gosh, certain fruits, um, you know, rice, uh, just innocuous foods that may have been looked at as bad or, you know, not allowed on, on, in certain, uh, season, competitive seasons. Um, and then of course people would, people would kind of get the concept that, well, you really can eat anything and still reach your physique goals. Um, and some of the people who were savvier and smarter about the whole thing kept these in quotes, discretionary calories down to a low roar, like 10 to 20% of total calories. So they don't degrade the quality of their entire diet, but they are still able to provide kind of a respite or a break from these Spartan and stereotypical types of uh, bodybuilding prep foods. Um, but then there of course were people who ate 80% crap and 20% wholesome foods. <laughs> and so it's an interesting thing. It was an interesting phenomenon that happened. And, and um, it was interesting to be one of the guys who put that acronym out there as a shorthand impatient answer to newbies asking constant questions and see it become an international type of viral brand, if you will, yeah. of a specific diet where you eat junk foods and, and brag about it. Uh, and the implications of that health-wise are, you know, they're, they're worth discussing. Um, and, and also the physique implications as well, because you can't necessarily eat exactly whatever junk foods you want and maintain a degree of satiety that enables you to sustain a diet indefinitely. Um, for my research review, I do this monthly research review, which is the first in the industry. I've been doing it since 2008. And I interviewed um, a gentleman named Anthony Howard Crow, who took the IIFYM experiment to its extreme. So for 100 days, all he consumed was li literally whey protein powder of diff different flavors and Ben and Jerry's ice cream of just, just various flavors and a little bit of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and he had these very reasonable calorie and macronutrient targets, but they were hit with kind of this very extreme diet of whey protein and ice cream. And he felt like total crap throughout the hundred days. He performed like total crap. And, you know, frankly, his physique didn't, didn't, uh, it didn't make very good improvements at all. Even though the macros were being hit, the calories were being hit, the training was being done. There was just something about the ice cream and whey diet that just made him feel terrible on a, on a like minute by minute basis to the point where it just impacted his training and his quality of life. And he was just super glad to be done with the hundred day experiment by the time he was done with it. So, um, when you take the IFYM concept to its extremes, you'll, you'll definitely run into problems, but when you do it in a sensible way, for example, when 80 to 90% of your diet is from wholesome choices, and then you allot 10 to 20% for sort of the YOLO type of foods, um, whether it be desserts or drinks or, you know, deep fried Lord knows what's, then that, that's a smarter way to go about the whole IIFYM thing. And circling back to the question you asked about how, how does that relate to flexible dieting stuff? 
Um, flexible dieting has a, a bunch of different definitions that it was given in the in popular culture, but the original definition of, of flexible dieting in the scientific literature was um, a flexibility to the dietary approach and a flexibility of the perception of foods. So in other words, um, foods, evil and um, dieting was not supposed to be viewed as an all or nothing type of endeavor. And so um, the idea of counting macros and filling them in with, with, you know, certain things and hitting your gram targets down to the last detail by the end of the day, that was sort of a later incarnation of the so-called flexible dieting thing that people kind of conflated with the, the original concept of flexible dieting, which is pretty far from micromanaging your diet. So flexible dieting is technically, it's a cognitive style of dietary restraint. So you and it's also called dietary control. So you can either have flexible dietary control where it's not an all or nothing thing. And you don't look at foods as, as good or bad. Um, and you don't have this dichotomous thinking towards foods or, um, you can, um, on the rigid side of rigid dietary control, it is all or nothing. And there are good and evil foods and you, you do have to kind of micromanage and quantify everything. So, so yeah, there, there's a lot of confusion actually about what flexible dieting is, but if you can think of it as flexibility of the approach to dieting, then you, then you get it. See, some people are, some people have a preference towards and have a, have greater success with more rigid types of approaches and more quantitative and granular and micromanagey types of approaches. Whereas other folks have greater success with qualitative habit-based types of approaches to dieting. And that's all under the umbrella of flexible dieting, which basically says everybody is different in what works best for them with respect to not just the dietary approach, but also the diet itself in, in terms of things like macronutrient breakdown, um, things like meal frequency through the day or through the week. And even things like how you would allot for hedonic or, or um, junk foods, you know, that, that needs to be individualized as well. So flexible dieting at its heart is just the individualization of dietary variables and the acknowledgement that everybody is, everybody varies uh, with quite a wide range re with respect to dietary approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think like when I think of just like dietary guidelines in general, um, I mean, I think there's, it's good to have information, especially when it comes to like hitting spe specific micronutrient targets and things like that and protein recommendations. And some of these things that like our bodies are just simply going to struggle without and having that information obviously is going to be helpful when you're kind of planning out what you're going to eat in a day. But when you get to the point where you have like the dietary guidelines kind of force people into a very specific set of parameters, that's where I think the failure rate gets to the point where like, what are we even doing here? And with the flexible dieting approach, I just wish they would stick with that because that kind of keeps the door open for the personal preferences that are going to ultimately make whatever system you put in place 
sustainable for the rest of your life versus something you can maybe stick to for from January till March. And then you fall off the wagon and give up until the beginning of the next year. Yeah, totally agreed. Totally agreed. And, and issuing universal dietary guidelines has always been a problem at the public health level. And it's always been, um, well, a failure at, at the public health level. And, um, a, a lot of folks will point to the, the fact that, well, the public just doesn't follow the guidelines. And while that's true, it's still a problem. It's like, why, why don't they follow the guidelines? If it's, it's the silver bullet, you'd think they would, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> it's still a problem. If they, you can't follow it then, and if you can't grasp it, then it's still a problem because, um, the health professionals aren't to either, either aren't conveying it properly or they are conveying it properly, but people just don't necessarily get it or necessarily can't necessarily sustain it. So mm -hmm. yeah, that, that is definitely a, an ongoing problem. Yeah. And I think like, and then, and then you, you do have to ask too, like, I think like when you get to the point where you start looking at food as like you said, not good or bad, but these are tools I can use a certain point you have to get around to picking which tools are going to work best for you. Cause it's like, if you try to use all of them, um, and this is where I think sometimes like the everything in moderation gets like it gets taken to its logical conclusion as well. And then it's like, well, if if you have so much of everything, even a moderate amount of it's going to pile up and exceed your needs. And then you find yourself in the same situation as you did when you maybe were just eating kind of haphazardly. So with like what I think I like about the whole flexible diet stuff that you're doing and just kind of what like guys like Lane Norton have started to do once they saw all the like the if it fits your macro thing kind of head towards that logical conclusion is is you still I think most well-programmed dietary approaches have some sort of like built-in restriction if they're going to be successful because most people just have a food environment around them that otherwise would be conducive to caving into cravings and things like that so like I think people, I think people need freedom to pick that restriction though, the one that works for them. So whether that is like, well, I'm going to look at, um, I'm going to look at what I need from an energy standpoint and make sure I stay within this range. And then the foods I put in there, I'm going to be reasonable about, I think was it Lane says like, you just don't be an asshole. <laughs> so, so, so don't do the 12 pop tarts and three scoops of whey type of a situation. Um, so like, yeah, you can pick what you want yeah. from these groups, but like be, be smart about it. Like don't do, like, you know, when you, you know, if you're going and buying three donuts every day and just putting a scoop of protein in a, in a shaker, like that's probably not the path forward on a regular basis. So I think he's like leaning a little bit into just like, you know, like use, use your head a little bit here with this and don't, don't try to like, don't try to adjust it so far that it doesn't mm -hmm. work for you anymore. And then you have other folks who it's just like, for whatever reason, maybe they crave salty, savory foods or something like that. And they get more satiated from, from that sort of stuff. And they find themselves doing quite well, restricting carbohydrate or someone else is like, gets really full by eating oatmeal and potatoes. So they, they, they tend to skew a little further towards carbohydrates. And as long as they're kind of being putting that into the whatever whatever plan they are they 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 have a little bit easier time maybe is what i'm saying like kind of mm. eventually getting to the point where they can intuitively eat without having to like you know open up uh the the tracker and weigh all their food every day and that sort of thing yeah well that that's exactly it zach you know um that folks have folks vary in in their i guess their optimal per personalized approach to hedonic allotment 
So like junk foods, for example, desserts and stuff like that. Um, there's essentially th three models, three ways to approach that. There's either have a little bit every day or have a banger of it once a week, or just don't, don't have any of it at all. And uh, the don't have any junk food at all model is, it's very rare and it's unrealistic for the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. um, so then we've got the, the two models of have a little bit every day, like 10 to 20% of total typical calories, let's say like 250 to 500 or 200 to 400 calories a day of whatever on earth you want, whether it's like a glass of wine or two, or whether it's a, some freaking ice cream and a cookie or something, you know, mm -hmm. um, every day. And, or you've got the once a week in quotes, cheat meal, people hate that word or cheat day. Um, uh, my friend, Brett Contreras calls it a, 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 an, if it fits your calories day where you got your calorie target yeah. and you just for one, one day a week, you, you literally just fill it in with whatever on earth you want which is kind of a cool approach for some people. And so you just have to figure out the person that you are in terms of how you want to approach discretionary cal calorie allotment. Um, but as long as you, as for most people, as long as you keep it within 10 to 20 ish percent of total calories net for, for the week or the day, then having 80 to 90% of your calories coming from the wholesome and minimally refined stuff, it's going to facilitate long-term health and it's going to make things sustainable because you have a little bit of a, uh, you have a little bit of an out, um, and a little bit of indulgence and fun and, and, you know, uh, a chance to fulfill a sense of, of rebellion from, you know, the rules of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that, that's kind of how that should be individualized. And, um, that, that is what flexible dieting is all about. And, and, it does have certain rules. Like there are certain rules that should be imposed in order to keep things under control from a long-term health standpoint and from a sustainability standpoint. And the 80, 20 rule seems to have withstood the test of time in terms of just sort of general heuristics, general targets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it makes, so much more sense to me when I start applying that same logic to other areas of life and you can really kind of see the way like the human psyche kind of behaves just in general. And one of the other things that kind of became apparent to me was when I was, when I started coaching, you'd have this scenario where people are, they're picking races oftentimes that are, you know, four five, six months out. And when they sign up for that race and decide to like hire a coach and you have this I mean, same thing as a new year's resolution. You get the gym membership, you have all these ambitions. I'm going to lose this much weight or I'm going to add this much muscle. I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And it's super exciting and engaging. And then every week that goes by that long-term target just loses a bit of that luster to the point where like, sometimes you don't even get to it uh, or you get to it and you're just like no longer even half as interested in it as you were when you first started it. So I started thinking about this. Well, what do you do to kind of keep that, that, that sort of energy and that dedication, that discipline in place to the, at a high enough level where it becomes a success. And with the training, it was like, well, let's pick that race goal, but then let's look at the scaffolding of what we need to do to get there. And within that scaffolding, there are going to be small goals that we can focus on first and work to. 
and like breaks in it too. Like, so I'll do like a deload week, usually every third week or something like that. So no one is staring down the barrel of, you know, 20 weeks of progressively getting more difficult. It's there's a light at the end of tunnel every couple of weeks, every few weeks, uh, or they have some small goal to hyper-focus on like short interval development or long interval development, long run development, different things that are going to keep them interested and keep them excited. And then it'll change to something else by the time that interest and that excitement starts to wane. And when you get that right, you start to see like how motivated someone can be to stay the course when they're given those kind of short-term targets that uh, give them kind of a way to like feel like they're not being told what to do, I guess, is maybe the best way to say it. Cause like, if you're, if you're that person who's like, I'm hundred percent compliant, you know, you have to be ready to feel like you're being told what to do by your food or by your workout. And that, like you said, I don't think that matches well with a lot of people's psychology. Yep. Yeah. And, and for most people, it is a, is a long-term game that we're talking about, mm-hmm. especially the general public we're talking about health. We're talking about maintaining healthy body composition. Um, and a lot of people struggle with uh, just binging and restricting. And a lot of the, the basis of, of binging and restricting is this perception that certain foods are never allowed in any amount. And uh, it's ironic because when you look at the longest living populations in the world, the, the, the countries with the longest life expectancy in the world, you look at their diets uh, and you see this incredible diversity of foods. And something that recently struck me when I, when I looked this up, I looked at uh, the Swiss <laughs> and they're at number five. Look at what they eat, and you see a bunch of pastries and cheeses, and it's like <laughs> that's very interesting. And of course, you know, you've you've got a bunch of Asian countries in there, and they're eating a hell of a lot of rice and noodles and stuff. And um, it's not necessarily this what you would think would be the diets of of people with the longest life expectancy. And so that kind of tells us a couple things that there are many other variables aside from diet that determine life expectancy. Uh, There are many other high impact variables like um, psychological health, social health, family ties, relationships, um, stress levels, activity levels, ongoing body composition, and stuff like that can can really kind of dominate the influence uh, to the point that uh, a very wide variety of um, food selection is, is perfectly legit for maximizing lifespan and health span. And so I think that, that we need to be a lot less dogmatic about what we think are, it would, it is the Holy grail set of foods that would determine the longest, healthiest lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that seems to be a, a never ending argument that will uh, probably never be solved. So yeah. I yeah, think it's difficult uh, to study. You can't set up an RCT for that. Right. right? Yeah. And then, you know, even if we get close with what we have, it's like, you're always, there's always going to be enough opportunity to push back on it where then people who want to believe what they want to believe are still going to continue to believe that what, what they mm-hmm. were before. And, sure. and it's, I just don't think it's like a, it doesn't, it's not, it's not conducive to properly educating people probably to go kind of go down that path of like, here's the, the, 
list of 15 foods that if mm. you eat mostly or all of these all the time, like you'll live to be 120 or whatever the magic mm -hmm. number happens to be. It seems to always get longer. Like every time I look, someone's going to try to live to be 150 with this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, we'll see. We'll see. It'll, it'll, it'll yeah. be the, what was that? Was that that, that uh, French lady who lived to be like 121 or something like that? And she'd have a yeah. glass of wine and a cigarette every day or something like that. Right. Some chocolate. Yeah. Like, what's the secret? What's your secret, Saul? Yeah. Chocolate and young men. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So it gets really interesting, I think, at that. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about, because the interesting thing to me is like, if we go back to your your friend, I think you said Anthony, who did the the ice cream whey protein uh, and shot a whiskey the way, way and, and Ben and Jerry's diet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when he was like doing that, do you suspect that when he started feeling miserable with it, was that like miserable state impacting his like energy output because he was like not getting to the gym and training the way he would have been able to, when he had like a more well-rounded diet and then maybe didn't hit his, like his, his lean mass, like body composition goals because of that, because it was almost a different framework with his kind of like suboptimal energy levels or, hmm. um, mm -hmm. because it, it, it's interesting because like in a short term, you would think like something like that, or there was a guy who did like candy, essentially candy and protein and a multivitamin or something like that and lost weight. So <laughs> it's like, if we, with this one, like narrow target, it seems like you can kind of eat whatever you want, as long as you have that calorie deficit but like what was kind of illustrated with the 100 day Ben and Jerry's whey diet and what I would imagine the candy diet was going to eventually get to if it was done long enough is this like unsustainability. Um, but is there more to it like than that? Is there something going on where um, I know there is a little bit of wiggle room with just metabolic rate based on like if you're just really tired and lethargic, you're going to likely do a lot less like non like non non intended at movements and things like that. So is there any yeah. reason that he was like yeah. that that he compromised that too or yeah I, I think I think everything got really screwed up. Um he his digestion was really bad. So a lot of a lot of diarrhea, a lot of loose stools and mm. with that you can kind of surmise that there was a a lot of malabsorption going on. It's it's possible that um, that particular diet of just ice cream and whey protein and a little bit of whiskey uh, was not optimal for um, his uh, his gut microbiota. And so there was very compromised uh, energy and nutrient transformation going on to the point where, yeah, may maybe he was actually consuming, uh, let's say 120, 150 grams of protein, but he wasn't necessarily absorbing and utilizing it and it wasn't necessarily getting properly partitioned um, towards towards the lean tissue as it should have. And so along with digestive issues and just having to get on the pot and have the mm -hmm. runs um, was disturbed sleep. So lower sleep quality ends up um, sapping energy that could have been used for properly training. And so the cycle was just kind of vicious and sort of fed itself uh, for a hundred days. And, um, yeah, he lost a bunch of weight, but he also lost a bunch of lean mass and, mm -hmm. uh, he felt like total dog shit the whole time. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting, uh, ex experiment, interesting observation of, of kind of the bad things that can happen 
when you take uh, if it fits your macros literally and, and fill it in with whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just curious. I, when, when you said that story, I had recalled, I had a buddy in college when we, I mean, we were all on the cross country team and the, our first like couple of years, we would just eat at the cafeteria, which gave us access to basically whatever we wanted. And then you move out of the dorms and you end up somewhere else and you're not at the cafeteria anymore. And he would just go to the grocery store and buy like 30 boxes of pasta noodles, like 30 jars of sauce and like 30 things of Mac and cheese. And he, I think he probably had a couple more things in there, but it was like, four or five things and he'd just get in like bulk package basically and just he was the type of person who could like he's kind of mechanical like that where it was just like okay here's the input just do it and then move on to the next thing and yeah he i think he just ended up getting shamed out of doing it eventually <laughs> but but I, I always wonder like how long he would have been able to sustain that that lifestyle yeah. had he maybe he would have maybe that one was a little more digestively friendly than the ben and jerry's uh, way scenario mm. but he uh yeah. I suspect that wouldn't have been something he stuck would have stuck to regardless of uh, our commentary about it, even if sure. it, it had been left alone. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting stuff. Um, so one thing I wanted to talk about a bit too, is just kind of the protein side of the, the equation. Yeah. And with, so with the flexible diet stuff, is that typically the starting point is kind of like, let's first kind of get this relatively fixed number that you're going to want to hit fairly consistently from one day to the next established. And then from there, we can layer in the carbs and fats uh, based on whatever the energy output is going to be for the day or however you kind of break up your your range of uh, tracking by. Yeah, the beginning of programming is well, what is your energy requirement? Um, and and let, let me know if you can if you can hear me or if I cut in or out. Oh, you're good for now. Okay. Um, yeah, the beginning of it is, is just figuring out energy requirements. Uh, that's kind of the, one of the less negotiable programming elements, uh, as far as people's goals go. And, and the other, um, least negotiable is, is protein intake, especially the, the lower end. Um, there is a substantial amount of research evidence showing that, Roughly double the RDA is kind of the sweet spot for most goals, whether the goals have to do with health or performance or body composition. It really kind of comes down to about double the RDA, which is 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight or 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. And the way that, that we program is, or the way that people should program is, is uh, based on target body weight instead of uh, current body weight, unless your current body weight is your target body weight. So, so that's the deal with protein. We've got this range that my colleagues and I came up with. Um, and that has rung true for most of the literature of a, a lower end of 1.6 and a higher end of 2.2 grams per pound of body weight uh, or per kilogram of body weight, 1.6, 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight and imperial terms that would be 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight and that's kind of the magic range of protein intake that would cover the needs of folks with various athletic goals and various uh, physique related goals um there are uh, targets above and below those that that are a little bit more on the fringe but um that range would cover most people and that range would be pretty static, that the protein part would be pretty static, while carbohydrate and fat 
proportion wise it is really just based on personal preference, uh, tolerance, athletic goals, um, really what the, what the individual can, can sustain. And uh, there's very, there's negligible difference in terms of um, effects on health and even to a large degree effects on just, you know, recreational athletic performance, whether you go high carb, um, high carb, low fat, low carb, high fat. So it really should be a personal preference thing. And sometimes that can vacillate through the course of a week. You can be low fat, high carb on some days and high carb and high fat, low carb on other days. And then that's perfectly fine. The, the carb and fat proportion of the diet is the most negotiable programming element, even day to day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that you kind of at the end there when you said like you have that kind of week long outlook because I was thinking about this not too long ago where it's like when did we decide that like the reset was like 24 hours where like okay this is what I did that day and then that's kind of like fixed in stone I got to kind of readdress this again the following day and when I kind of started getting curious about it was just with my own training because my you know, my lifestyle varies quite a bit from one day to the next even when I am doing like a similar amount of training volume, because I could be doing like short intervals one day and then just real easy running. So like, you know, barely cracking my aerobic threshold one day and like jacking my heart rate up above 180 the other day. And it's like the, the needs for those two activity levels are different. So like for me, I was thinking, well, why can't I take some of the carbohydrate I would normally have if I were just to even it out over the course of a week and borrow some from the low intensity day and add it to the high intensity day. So I have like a little more carbohydrate fuel kind of stacked around that higher intensity session. And then on the day where I'm just going to go out and kind of basically recover and move my legs a little bit, you know, promote myself to burn more fat and therefore not necessarily have to kind of consume as much carbohydrate. And that got me down the path of thinking like, well, I should look at this in like a two to three day window and just kind of position my, my intake around that versus this arbitrary, like I got to hit these specific things every 24 hours. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. People have this tendency to, well, at least in my circles, take physique related um, protein guidelines and sort of superimpose them on every nutrient. So for example, protein, you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't want to look at your protein targets as something that would um, need to be hit on a 48 hour basis. You know, you, you would want to look at protein, um, protein intake on, on a 24 hour cycle, because uh, just based on research, looking at muscle protein synthesis and, and frequency across the span of a day, um, there are differences in, in the ability to maximize muscle protein synthesis with, let's say two big meals versus four smaller meals. Um, the four small, smaller meals has, has the edge as far as that goes. And so you can only imagine if, if you just hit your total protein needs for every, every 48 hour mark, then there would be substantial differences in muscle protein synthesis within those time blocks. If you were to compare that model with something a bit more idealized, that's just not the case with, um, carbohydrate and fat, as far as we know just because the, the goal of muscle protein synthesis is not necessarily impacted independently 
by um, carbohydrate and fat. And so that leaves a lot more negotiability with respect to distribution of these nutrients um, over longer time periods training. And I've certainly seen that play out <clears throat> observationally in the field and with, with clients and various athletes. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors include LMNT's electrolyte supplement and Optimal Carnivore's organ meat supplement. If you'd like to see more details and discounts for those two sponsors, head to the show notes or zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, you know, that makes sense. I mean, it was always described to me as if like the, like when we're looking at like a 24 hour time frame or something around there that like the big step forward is to get enough protein. And then there are like, there's another small step forward to, to take advantage of by parceling it out in like, say three or four feeding sessions versus just all at once. Like you described, um, mm-hmm. is that, is that pretty accurate from, from what you've seen in the research? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, it's very goal specific. So there is this interesting phenomenon where if the goal is to maximize muscle growth, that has a very specifically different set of rules than the goal of retaining muscle in, in dieting or hypocaloric conditions. So the body appears to be just very resilient and very, very flexible and very capable of hanging on to lean tissue despite long periods of a neglect for protein feeding frequency or feeding frequency period. Uh, some of the more extreme examples of that are zero calorie every other day um, dieting, where you see a where you see a retention of, of, of lean mass over over a period of weeks or months. Um, now, if you were to flip that and make the goal to maximize rates of muscle gain, how to, just try to gain as much muscle as possible in the shortest amount of time. Well, that is not necessarily going to be achieved unless you optimize protein feedings per day. And that would come down to several protein feedings in the course of a, of a 24 hour period and and ongoing. And so the body um, takes a little bit more nudging and a little bit more, more uh, special tactics to grow muscle versus uh, retain muscle in suboptimal conditions. And so um, the goal of muscle growth, the way that we approach that question is sort of from the top down where we look at what total daily amount of protein maximizes muscle growth. And then we work down from there. So that range, which I mentioned is 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight that would be sort of the magic range that maximizes muscle growth. And then we looked at the research, looking at acute effects on muscle protein synthesis of various protein dosings and looking at the higher outliers and looking at the protocols that were more relevant than, than the older stuff. We came, we came to the conclusion that it's roughly 0.4 all the way up to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight that would be the protein dose that maximizes muscle protein synthesis in the short term per meal. So 0.4 to 0.6. And so just sort of doing the simple math about how many of those feedings equals 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day, 
comes down to four protein feedings of 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And so that is kind of the pragmatic heuristic of protein distribution to maximize muscle growth for at least four meals dosed at 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And, um, yeah, that would be taken at least four times in the day. And then you'd hit 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight in total. So that's for muscle growth. As far as hanging on to muscle while you're dieting, it's almost like the wild, wild west. Anything goes, if you want to eat one meal a day, it'll work. If you want to eat two meals a day, it'll work. If you want to eat every other freaking day, it could tend to work. Um, I have my doubts about how well the every other day model would work with at the leaner that you get. There's a bit, you know, more of an escalating threat to lean mass retention. Um, but, but yeah, a lot more flexibility if, if you don't have the goal of maximizing muscle gain and you just mainly have the goal of hanging on to muscle while dieting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The interesting thing about that, or I guess the follow-up question I would have, if someone was like following a one meal a day program and they decided, Hey, I need to, I want to gain some muscle and I want to maximize this approach, but I want to stay as close to one meal a day as I can. Are they going to be okay introducing just like essentially pure protein sources for those other three feeding windows and spreading that out? Or is there going to be, is there some application with a carbohydrate or fat along with it? That's going to make that more impactful from a protein multiple synthesis standpoint, assuming they're hitting the right macro or I'm sorry, the, the, the right energy intake numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, 10, 20 years ago, we would say that, yeah, combine protein and carbs in order to maximize muscle protein synthesis per dose. But, um, over the past decade or so, apparently protein does the job on its own if the doses are high enough. So there've been a series of experiments comparing protein by itself versus protein with a substantial amount of highly insulinemic, highly glycemic carbohydrate. And as long as the protein dose is about 25-ish grams or more, then no amount of additional carbohydrate uh, increases the muscle protein synthesis response when it's co-ingested with the protein. So this is a relatively recent finding or so within the last decade or so that we found that protein can do the job on its own if the, if the doses are high enough. Now, um, if we were to kind of nitpick at, at the theoretics of somebody trying to stay as close to one meal a day as possible, but still, um, but still, but still try to achieve um, muscle growth or still try to push towards the max of rate of muscle growth, then we can speculate that if the person uses a mix of protein types, fast proteins and slow proteins, and not necessarily just a fast protein like, like whey, then there could be some, at least theoretically, some more opportunity to uh, extend anabolism around the clock. Um, Instead of uh, leaving all of the fast stuff to go towards, let's say oxidation. And so we might be able to kind of twist the fate, the metabolic fate of certain proteins a little bit more towards um, more optimal partitioning in, instead of just using one type of protein, like a, a fast protein like whey. So that is uh, hypothetical and theoretical and 
uh, hasn't been looked at. What is the optimal mix of proteins for one meal a day in order to maximize muscle anabolism? That that would be a fun experiment to do, but it's it's never been looked at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that conversation I think has come up in like kind of the carnivore diet community from time to time, where it's I mean you just tend to get more people who are in, like going to do a one meal or a two meal a day type of a structure. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I want to say there their argument was the the transit time of something like an animal-based protein is going to be slow enough that like in theory you could hit multiple windows perhaps because it's just going to move through slower versus something that's a little quicker acting but um i think you sort of answered that question already by saying like maybe but it's also all speculation at this point right right it would be a fun experiment to do just all an all-way diet versus an all-beef diet yeah who gains more muscle over the course of like eight to 12 weeks? Yeah. That'd be, that'd be really fun, but I guess nobody's interested in funding that one. No, not yet. Anyway, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Those, the carnivores are, are an ambitious group. So <laughs> who knows what yeah, we'll see from that, them, man, that, that would be super interesting. <laughs> that would be super interesting to see. Um, awesome. So yeah, protein, I think we touched on all the questions I had around that for the most part. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about fiber too. Uh, when I first kind of, well, well, earlier in my life, like when I was thinking a lot more simplistically about food, I just assumed fiber was kind of something that sort of came around for the ride when you ate certain fruits and vegetables for the most part. And then it sort of served as a potential bulking agent for people who wanted to reduce calories without having their stomach feel like it was empty all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, since then I've learned that there's perhaps other applications for fiber, but we want to just talk to us a little bit about like where you see fiber fitting in flexible diet. Is it something that you say everyone should be targeting a certain amount of, or is it that a little more individual as well? Fiber is a kind of an enigmatic, (laughs) an enigmatic topic because it's always difficult to study health outcomes. And so it's difficult to study health outcomes because you have to monitor people for years, sometimes decades. Um, and then you end up being at the mercy of observational research designs, which are important, but they're also um, subject to a lot of uh, validity threats and confounders and caveats. And so as far as what we know about fiber and as far as what the what the major position stands, at least the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics says anyway, not like they've been super damn right about everything their whole lives, but um, their position on fiber is to consume 14 grams for every thousand calories that you consume. So it's not this staggering amount of fiber that they, you know, that they've concluded is, is necessary to optimize health, but it, it happens to be there, you know, so Typical person on a 2,000-ish calorie diet would want to shoot for about 30 grams of fiber. Um, I think it would be interesting to to try to rank fiber intake on on a list of things that impact on lifespan and health span. Um, and I almost I almost see fiber as kind of this this bystander. Um, almost a, a default of eating a variety of foods and including plant foods in the diet. I don't necessarily believe that somebody who only hits, let's say 15 grams of fiber on average in their day is going to 
live substantially um, less long as somebody hitting 30 grams of fiber a day. I think there's just so many other variables in programming and, and within the lifestyle that render fiber as not trivial, but not as something that, that people tend to put on this pedestal. Like you, you mentioned that fiber is a good tool for, for satiety. Um, fiber is a good tool for potentially, you know, improving digestion. Um, there's a certain amount of research showing that fiber uh, creates a, a favorable gut microbiota. Okay, cool. And everything cool. Um, I just think that what people have a tendency to do with fiber is think that, think that more is better. And I think it's important to realize that even with fiber, more is not necessarily better and kind of pushing far past this sort of consensus guideline of 14 grams per thousand calories is not necessarily going to be doing anybody any particular favors. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of gray area with fiber. I, I'm not necessarily this person who has a raging, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, a raging love for, for fiber. And, and I don't necessarily see a high fiber intake as essentially for essential for maximizing lifespan and health span. I, I do think it is kind of a passenger and, and a bystander and a default of eating certain foods that happen to have other constituents in it uh, that positively impact health and positively fill in micronutrient gaps. Um, yeah. Yeah. My, my stance on fiber is it's fine because uh, it's not a, some sort of super make or break. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I tend to see it like it, well, I, I, I tend to get entertained by it more than anything now. Cause I see, you see the arguments about it are kind of funny. Cause it's like, you know, one side of the spectrum is like, says like, well, it's just empty. It's a waste. It's just like sending bulk through your system. And like, you know, then the fear mongering might go as far as like, it's ripping apart your intestines and all that stuff, which I mean, I don't know, maybe like at certain amounts it, it could, cause you do see some pretty high fiber numbers sometimes when people get to the other side of the spectrum and start looking at it as this kind of like Holy grail thing that you should have, have tons of, but, um, for me personally, I've always just found that like, when I have, like when I'm eating just like my normal low carb diet, which includes plenty of animal products, but also some plants and fruits and things too. Like I, I end up hitting around like 20 to 30 grams of fiber pretty easily in the course of the day without really trying. And mm -hmm. my digestion is perfectly fine with that. It's when I start getting kind of when I, when I try to intentionally restrict it or add more is where I start noticing more issues typically. And, um, mm. you know, they, they would make sense probably like you go, you get, start getting really high with it and it's, you know, you're just going to the bathroom all the time. And if you're really yeah. low on it, you know, it just kind of makes your, I think makes digestion a little less, less predictable maybe is the way to say it. But, um, yeah, so I find it kind of just a more of an interesting kind of sideline topic that I, don't mind watching people argue over, but also, well, you know, Zach, it's interesting to see people arguing over the fiber thing. Cause it's really predictable. What tribe is going to deify fiber and what tribe is going to vilify fiber. So you see the, the carnivore folks, like you mentioned, fear mongering over like any amount of fiber intake. And then you see the, the, the vegan crowd, just deifying fiber hundred grams a day. 
dude, <laughs> I, it, it gets crazy, man. And, and, um, and if you, if you look up the consensus on, on healthy bowel movements, <laughs> this is another thing that there's a lot of speculation wrapped into it because frankly, it's kind of hard to study taking a dump healthily, <laughs> but, um, anywhere from three times a week to three times a day is considered the normal healthy range. Um, with a very, very high fiber intake, you see people producing like a kilo of crap a day. Uh, if anything else, man, that would just, uh, it would ruin your, your, your quality of life a, a bit. Unless you just sort of live by yourself and you're okay with having a raw bum all day. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, the, the fiber thing is interesting. And uh, I tend to default to the, the position stand recommending this sort of reasonable, moderate, non-insane amount of fiber intake per day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Alan, um, you've been generous with your time. I don't want to tie you up too long this afternoon, but I want to give you an opportunity to either touch on anything you want to want to say yet, or if you're good with everything we've chatted about so far, share with us where we can find you online and maybe a little bit about, about your book, your flexible diet book. Well, I first want to say that it's been a real honor to speak with you and discuss these ideas and stuff. I mean, you've been one of the guys that constantly gets brought up in, in the debates that I've had over high carb and low carb <laughs> and all these, these internet wrestling matches where people are just keyboard warrioring the hell out of each other. You always get brought up. And, and um, I think that your accomplishments in athletics are, are obviously spectacular and commendable. So you know, I definitely, I definitely was starstruck when you, when you contacted me to, to be on the show. Um, as far as my stuff goes, it, I, like you said, I just completed a book called Flexible Dieting and um, it, it's mistitled because it's more than a dieting book. It's just basically a, it, it's an all encompassing nutrition book that focuses on improving athletic performance and body composition. So it's kind of like this uh, biblical <laughs> um, reference unit for for those goals, and, and um, it's it's written in a, a non-textbook voice, and I'm really proud of it. It's something that uh, worked on for quite a long time, almost two years, uh, but it actually contains like 15 years of field work in, into the book, and uh, well, more than that, mm, yeah, more than 15 years of field work into the book. And that's available everywhere books are sold. And I also have got a monthly research review, like I mentioned earlier, that kind of keeps people on top of the, the new research as it trickles in and discusses what we can do with this, these new findings, how, how we can apply them to ourselves and, you know, to clients and, and uh, folks in the field. And so that, that's basically my life. It's just uh, research, writing, education, and uh, trying to beat Father Time, yeah. trying to beat fate. <laughs> awesome, Alan. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I will link that stuff to the show notes so listeners can go check out your book and find out what you're up to uh, if they want to check out more. But thanks a bunch for taking some time to come on the show. You got it, dude. Thank you right back. Hey, folks. Thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. 
If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athletes guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 